let's take our Bibles. We're going to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As we do part two of spiritual gifts, we're going to get into the specific gifts, gifts now that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. But let's do this. If you're physically able to stand, let's read the passage together. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to read 1 through 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. 12.3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is anathema or accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy, and to another the, the distinguishing or discerning of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues or languages, and to another the interpretation of tongues or languages. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. May the Lord write His word on our hearts. You may be seated, and let's just pray. Father, thank You so much for each precious person of the body of Christ has come into this place. Those who are visiting today, those who may not know you yet, those who may have been away for a while, maybe they've been a prodigal, but they want to come home. Uh, Lord, those who would say, I'm not sure what my spiritual gift is yet, but I want to know what it is and I want to use it for the glory of God. Thank you that you sovereignly distribute gifts to your people to manifest the glory of God to manifest something that can be for the good of the body. And Lord, we want to be yielded to that. And we know, as we studied last week, it's possible to neglect your spiritual gift. It's possible to not engage it. And that is up to us to, to engage the gift, to actually use it. We have a part to play. You distribute the gifts, but we have to put them into practice. So may we have ears to hear what you would say to us, what your spirit would say to your body, your church, for whom you died. May you bless this time. May you be glorified in it in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Now we've been looking at spiritual gifts and we're in part two. We've kind of set the groundwork for the gifts and we're going to get into the specific gifts. But before we do, I want to remind you that the reason that we have gifts to begin with is because God is a giving God. He is a giver by nature. Love is something that wants to give. We want to give away things that can bless other people. That's what love does. Love wants to bless other people. John 3.16, we happen to be studying the book of John at our Thursday morning Bible study. For those uh, of you who are uh, men who have uh, some availability to be in town at 9 a.m. on Thursday mornings, we're at Marie Callender's, and we're going through the book of John, the gospel of John, verse by verse, and we spent the whole Bible study this last Thursday on John 3.16 because it's so incredibly rich. And that, that verse, as we all know it, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him will not perish, they'll have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave. What motivated God to give his son is his love. And there, it's the love of the Father. God the Father so loved the world that he made that had been lost in sin that he gave. God is a giving God. Tim Tebow, who played for the Florida Gators, uh, had an incredible run in 2009. He's a committed believer, and he started to think about ways that he could glorify God on the field. And so, under his eyes, what we call the eye black, when you're playing a sport, he put Philippians, he actually, it was Phil, uh, abbreviated, 413. And that verse says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So he said, he's being interviewed and he said, I thought that was a good verse for a football player. And so uh, Philippians 4.13 began to be this big thing on campus and even with the coaches. And they went on this incredible run and people who are not really familiar with the Bible start to, started to think that it was kind of a good luck charm. They were winning all these games and there was even a guy named Phil who thought it was about him because <laughs> it was Phil 4.13. Anyway. So Tebow said that as the season was winding down, he felt like the Lord was really impressing upon him to change the verse. And he mentioned it to the coaches, and the coaches were like, no, don't change the verse. We're winning. <laughs> they thought it was like a good luck charm, and Tebow was like, no, I, I believe that the Lord wants me to change the verse. So Tebow changed the verse to John 3.16, and he wore that in the national championship game. Uh, the Florida Gators won the game, and after the game... Tebow got word that 94 million people Googled John 3.16 as a result. And Tebow's first response was, he said, I was shocked, not because 94 million people Googled the verse, but how do 94 million people don't know what John 3.16 says? So he said he was a little taken back by that, but anyway, time went by, and three years later, Tebow was the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. There was a uh, playoff game in Denver, and it was the Broncos against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, if you're a Steeler fan, you remember that game, because the game went into overtime, and Tebow threw like an 80-yard touchdown pass to beat the Steelers, much to my devastation as a Steeler fan. But anyway, I don't want to relive that right now. So the Broncos won the game, and Tebow was in the hallway, and he was going to go out and talk to the press. And as he was making his way down the hallway, down the back hallway to the press room, the media guy for the Broncos said, Tim, you won't believe what happened tonight. Do you know what happened? And Tebow was like, yeah, we just beat the Steelers, and we're going to play the Patriots. He goes, no, Tim, you don't understand. He goes, do you know what your stats were today? And he began to run down the stats of that playoff game, Broncos-Steelers. Here's the stats. Three years to the day after Tebow wore John 3.16 on his eye black. Three years exactly to the day. This is what he, this was the stats for the Broncos during that game against the Steelers. Here's what it, here's the stats. It says, he said, no, I don't think you realize what happened. During the game, you threw for 316 yards your yards per completion were 31.6. Your yards per rush when you ran were 3.16. The ratings for the te television that night were 31.6. And the time of possession for the Broncos was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. 
During the game, 91 million people Googled John 3.16, and it's the number one trending thing on every platform. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? Now, I have always wondered over the years if, jo if God is involved in sports. Because <laughs> how, how many of you can bear witness to this? Like your football team, baseball team's losing, and you're like, God, I don't know if you answer prayer, but in these kind of settings, I don't know if you care about football and baseball games, but there's been a couple of interesting moments in sports where all you could say is, can that really be a coincidence? I don't think so. I think God was making a statement that night, and Tebow would testify as I watched him interviewed that he thought that night was about a football game. That night was not about a football game. It was about a God who so loves the world that he made that he gave his only son. Many of you know who have followed Tim Tebow's career that he's taken a lot of heat for what he's done by kneeling down and praying. Seems like everybody can do anything they want except you can't pray or acknowledge God anymore. But God is a God of miracles, and one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to manifest himself through us. And I tell you that story for a couple reasons. One, to let you know that one life. Imagine in those two games, Tebow got John 3.16 to 180 million people. That's over half the population of the United States of America. By just saying, I'm willing to say, here I am, Lord, use me send me. And sometimes we think the things that we do in life can be somewhat insignificant. Maybe we share a Bible verse with someone or we pray with somebody in a moment, hey, can I just pray for you? We don't understand the significance sometimes of how God wants to use us as vessels. Well, God is a giver and he gives gifts to his people. And you'll notice that the gifts are mentioned in verse four. There are a variety of gifts. If you pick it up with me in verse four, there are varieties of gifts. God is a God of variety. You can see that through the over six million forms of plants and animals that God has made. There's a, he's a God of variety. Look around the room right now. He is a God of variety. Now, they say somewhere in the world, every one of us has a twin, and maybe, maybe you've met yours, I don't know, you know, someone who looks a lot like you. But isn't it interesting to just look at the variety of human beings in the room? We're all different. We all have different voice patterns and and so forth. It's just a unique thing, the God of variety, the God who gives. And he has given to his church his son, by which we are born again. That's what John 3 is talking about. We must be born again by believing on the son. And then after we believe and are sealed with the spirit, we're born again of the spirit. Look at verse 4. The spirit gives gifts. They come by the same spirit. And there are varieties of them. And scholars would say that the gifts that are listed, about 20 in the New Testament, are probably not even exhaustive. We can see other gifts in the Old Testament, for example, people who are skilled with uh, you know, construction and uh, ventured out to help build the temple and stuff like that. So this may not be an exhaustive list, but we do have a good idea of what some of the gifts are as we look at these particular uh, gifts and texts. Now, in verse 5, you can see there are varieties of ministries. So the gifts go into ministries, but the same Lord. We see a hint of the Trinity here as we look at the varieties of workings or effects, but the same God. You have Spirit, Lord, and God in verses 4, 5, and 6. 
and he works, God works all things, notice, in all persons. But to each one, and here it is, to each believer is given, it's a gift that God gives. Notice the emphasis again, it's given, the manifestation of the Spirit, and it is for the common good. Now the manifestations that we're going to talk about in this section are probably things that come to a believer in a moment and are not necessarily with you forever. And you're going to see by the nature of the list that we look at that these are things that you may have experienced along your journey in a moment of time. Maybe you got a word of wisdom. Maybe you got a word of knowledge. Maybe something supernatural, in quotes, happened to you along the way. But it, it's not necessarily an everyday experience. But these are manifestations of the Spirit. And notice they are given to each one. So somewhere along the way, and maybe as a regular occurrence in the body of Christ, this will be uh, something that happens. Each one is given uh, given to, to us by God, the manifestation, notice it is of the Spirit. It manifests the Spirit of God. Now, manifestation is a word that I think each of us know, but it's worth just explaining. It is to make evident or to make known. Gifts are to make God known. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that down. Spiritual gifts are given to make God known. To make God manifest to others in the body of Christ. To manifest His goodness, His grace, His truth, His love. And spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit also can make God known to unbelievers. In fact, when an unbeliever comes into our midst, 1 Corinthians 14, he might say something like this, Surely God is in this place. Now how would he or she know that? Well, they would know that maybe by sensing the presence of God, but by also the context is sensing the presence of God through the body of Christ. And so as they see us moving in spiritual gifts, the, the Spirit of God manifesting Himself through the church, God is made known. And God wants to be made known to the world that He made. In fact, He tells us to be witnesses to a lost and dying world. Now everybody turn over to 1 Peter with me. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. 1 Peter's toward the back of the New Testament. Look at chapter 4. Peter reiterates this idea of these spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4, we're going to look at verses 10 and 11 when he says these words. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, that word for gift there is charisma, and it's defined as a divine endowment or a divine manifestation. As each one, 1 Peter 4.10, has received a special charisma, a gift. It's where we get the idea of the charismatic, right? Employ it. As, as you receive the gift, you've got to employ it in doing what? In serving one another. And here's your stewardship. You, you have stewardship over money, over your family, over your talents and over your spiritual gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies. You can see speaking gifts touched on here, serving gifts, but we're to do it by the strength that God gives us by the Spirit so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ 
to whom or to him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So be it. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So as we have these gifts, we're supposed to employ them. And each one of you have at least one, as we mentioned. And these are things that God may do in your life at certain times when the need arises to manifest himself. God wants to reveal himself to his people and to the world. The manifestation of the Spirit is given, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12, for the common good. I touched on this last week as we closed. But the common good literally means, it's sumphero in Greek, and it means to bring us together or to help us help each other. Spiritual gifts are to bring us together, to unify the body. They are for the common good, to help us lift each other up in time of need. We all do that. The body of Christ helps the body. Royal Family Kids Camp is a good example where all these volunteers went down to a camp this week and all engaged spiritual gifts to manifest God to a group of children who needed to see the love of Christ. The body of Christ, when we meet on a Sunday morning, and let's say we have a visitor that comes and meets with us and worships with us, each of us are manifesting our spiritual gifts and all these different ministries that make this work on a Sunday morning to show who God is to people. See, our job is to reveal God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that takes being surrendered to him, and it takes employing our spiritual gift. One writer says the economic principle here is to pay it forward. If you don't use your gifts, then you simply cannot accomplish this. The economic principle, pay it forward. You get a gift from God, you give it away. You get a gift from God, you give it away. God wants you to be a channel of his grace a vessel of his grace to show the world that God is a giving God and that he loves us and he loves them. And so he gives these gifts to his church to show who he is. To one is given. Notice the, the, the emphasis again is, is given, verse 8, the word of wisdom. See the word word there? That's the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S. And this is a speaking gift. It's the word of wisdom. Now, we know wisdom and knowledge was huge in first century Corinth. They were all into wisdom. But wisdom really defined is, is this. Wisdom is to know God, to know his will and his ways, and to do it. Have you ever been in a situation where someone came to you for counsel? And they said, hey, this is a situation that I am facing and what should I do? Do you have any words of wisdom for me? And sometimes, you know, the more, the older I get and the more I've walked with Christ, the less I know. <laughs> Can I get a witness? I used to know everything when I was a Christian for six months. You know, I figured out everything. I've solved Calvinism and Arminianism debate. I know, I know how to solve free will and election, and now I've gone on, and I'm like, boy, there's some good arguments on both sides, and wow. And, you know, we think we know everything about raising children until we have children. And we're like, oh, Lord, impart to me a word of wisdom, right? So, simply put, a word of wisdom is to help somebody in a moment to navigate something that they're going through. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, James 1.5, let him ask of God, who gives to all people liberally. Now, sometimes we lack wisdom and someone else helps us, or someone we know lacks wisdom and we might help them. I should point out that the wisdom that we want to impart is largely going to be centered in applying Bible verses to situations. In fact, I think sometimes what happens is the word of wisdom being a speaking gift happens a lot in Bible study. It happens a lot from pulpits across the country. Because the word of wisdom is the application of God's word for your situation. So think with me. Have you ever been in a situation where, you know, you're asking some tough questions. Lord, I don't know what to do. You're wrestling with something and you turn on a sermon on the radio. And that pastor is dealing with your specific situation and applying God's word. This happens so many times to me. I've been praying about something, wrestling. I wasn't sure what the Lord would have for us, or the elder board maybe was wrestling with something, and we needed God's wisdom, and we specifically prayed for it. And then I turn on a sermon, and that pastor is talking about that very thing. Or sometimes, you know, I'll talk to somebody who's come into a church service like this, and they'll, they'll come up to me, and they, they say, you were talking to me today. <laughs> and I said, I know. We've been following you all week. <laughs> no. But it's kind of fun to mess with people that way. But anyway... But isn't it interesting, like, someone can be going through something, they, maybe they haven't been to church for a while, they come into the church, and the message is all about what they're dealing with, or something is touched on in the message, and oftentimes, as a pastor, this happens, I'll, I'll depart from my notes, uh, what I would, thought I was going to say, I, I take a left turn, and then someone says, you know, when you touched on this, this was specifically what I was asking a question about. That is the word of wisdom. That's the spirit saying, I know what you're going through, and I'm going to help you navigate your life through the word of God. So, so we need to bring this down out of the clouds, so to speak, and say that largely speaking, this will just be a moment where a Bible verse gets applied to your situation. And maybe you've never seen that verse before, or maybe you see that verse with some different angles but that's the primary idea there. It's applying the Word of God. Wisdom is the application of knowledge, and it comes through the Spirit. The second gift list, listed here is, to another comes the word, logos, again, of knowledge. That's gnosis, according to the same Spirit. Now, we need wisdom, and we need knowledge. I, I believe that these, these gifts, you could kind of see them overlapping but sometimes the word of knowledge could be knowledge about Jesus. See, the highest knowledge that any of us can ever gain, the highest level of study, if you will, is the study of God. It's what we call theology. The Greek word for God is theos, T-H-E-O-S, and ology on the end is the study of God. We have a branch in theology called Christology. That's the study of Jesus the study of the Christ. And so have you ever had a moment where you were reading your Bible and all of a sudden a, a jewel of knowledge about Jesus all of a sudden hit your heart for the first time and you're like, wow. Sometimes it has to do with the nature of Christ or even the nature of his humanity. Or maybe the first time you really understood that Jesus is God in human flesh. Turn over to Colossians, a little bit to your right. Look at chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. 
Uh, Paul is celebrating the wisdom that's found in Jesus, the knowledge of our God. 2 Peter 3.18 says we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Colossians 2. Look at verses 2 and 3. Colossians 2, 2 and 3 says, That their hearts may be encouraged, Colossians 2, 2, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. In whom or in him, in Christ, are hidden how many? All the treasures, notice the two words here, of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we do know that when John introduces the subject of Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So please kind of just take some note of this. The word of knowledge and the word of wisdom will center itself in God's word. And it will center itself in the word of God or Jesus. The living word, if you will. In him are hidden. And that gives the idea that they have to be discovered that as we mine the depths of the person of Christ in the word of God, we will grow, Colossians 2, 3, in wisdom and knowledge. It says later on in verse 9 of the same chapter of Colossians 2, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, in Jesus, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Turn back to 1 Corinthians the word of wisdom and word of knowledge then will center itself on the application of God's word and the glory of the nature of God and the nature of Christ. It might be that you get an epiphany in a Bible study. Or it may be that you're reading your Bible and all of a sudden you make a realization of the depth and glory of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. You say, well, how does that help somebody? Well, anytime that I get more in touch with the glory of my God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It assures or reassures my faith. Amen? It makes me more secure. It gets me more in touch with the majesty and glory of God. And by virtue of that, I am, I am encouraged. Uh, we can inspire other people. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, look at verse 2, where it says, If I have the gift of prophecy, another spiritual gift, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, I could, I could understand the depth of things. If I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, the, several of the gifts repeated here. But the gifts must be governed by love. But have not love, I am what? I'm nothing. So it's not about, hey, uh, I don't know if you knew this, uh, Mr. Simpleton, as you pontificate on what you've discovered about the nature of Christ. No, the attitude that we share these insights with is love. That should motivate what we do. So if you're ever in a group Bible study, for example, and people begin to encourage one another with thoughts about Christ and God, the whole group is edified as iron sharpens iron, so 
one man sharpens another, one woman sharpens another. So in the setting of a Bible study or a worship service, and even in a first century context where maybe there was some back and forth questions and answers, etc., you can see how these gifts would operate. Verse 9, the third gift we'll look at is to another. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 is faith. Uh, the gift of faith is given. Notice, again, the source is the same spirit. Faith is pistis in Greek, P-I-S-T-I-S. And this is not saving faith because he's addressing Christians, so it's not just saving faith here. But it is a special endowment of faith in a moment where you may need extra faith. Uh, one writer says, this rather is faith to perform some extraordinary work. This is the kind of faith in Jesus' terms that can move mountains. The gift of faith may be connected, as we'll see in a moment, to the gifts of healing that follow. It's a mysterious surge of confidence in God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 9, the gift of faith. Maybe to endure a difficult circumstance or to have peace in a trial or to have extra faith that God will help you or even heal someone you're praying for, etc., this is spirit-given faith, distinct from saving faith or the daily faith with which we need to walk out our walk. This is a special moment. Uh, example, some years ago, Pastor Chuck Smith tells a story, Pastor Chuck's now with the Lord, that a family wheeled up their grandfather in a wheelchair, and they asked Pastor Chuck to pray for the grandpa. And Pastor Chuck said, sure, I'd be happy to pray for him. And he said he got a surge of faith in the moment, and he told the grandfather, get up out of your chair and walk. And he grabbed the grandfather and pulled him up out of the wheelchair. Now this takes faith, because if he fell on his face, and that's what we're all afraid of, right? <laughs> that would be bad. But he just said he had this surge of faith right after a message, picked him up out of the wheelchair, and grandpa started to walk. Later on, the family said, Pastor Chuck, that was awesome, but when we brought him up, he had a cold, and we just wanted you to pray over his cold. <laughs> Now, have you ever had a moment, though, where, look, our, our faith ebbs and flows. We all, we all understand that, right? There's times when my faith seems like I'm in the clouds and other times when I'm in the depths. But, but have you ever had a moment where it just seemed like your faith was just at an all-time high and you believed the Lord for something big? It's almost like the faith in the fire, Daniel chapter 3. We believe God will deliver us. We know he will, we believe he will, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your colossal statue, Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebi fans the flame seven times hotter. Oh yeah, well I'm going to make the furnace seven times hotter. As James Montgomery Boyce puts it, just in case the Hebrew God can only deliver from normally heated furnaces. <laughs> seven times hotter. <laughs> and they go into the fire. But Jesus is there in the fire with them. Sometimes we get an extraordinary measure of faith, but it's just to hang in there through what seems like uh, a trial that would normally devastate us or we would fall like a house of cards. And the Spirit shows up in the moment to impart extraordinary faith so that we could stand. Could be someone who was facing a difficult situation of an onslaught or someone who maybe had to deal with uh, the possibility of being martyred for their faith. Look, every person who's ever died for Jesus was a normal, 
ordinary person with all the frailties and weaknesses just like you and me. But in that moment, they were given the faith to stand. Stephen demonstrates this kind of faith in Acts 6 and 7 against the religious leadership. Uh, think of the apostles who have incredible faith in the middle of Jerusalem as they preach the gospel and the religious leadership are saying, stop it and we're going we're gonna to do you in if you speak any more in this name. Well, these are the things that God does through his servants. God is a miracle-working God, and he will give you faith in the moment. If you're willing to just say, Lord, help me, he'll impart the faith that you need. Now, the other gift mentioned in verse 9 to another, gifts of healing. Notice, brothers and sisters, the plural there. They are gifts of healing by the one spirit. A lot of you are asking questions, does God still heal today? The answer is yes. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I have up at the pulpit the book that was written by Lee Strobel. It's called The Case for Miracles. And there's a chapter in the book entitled, When God Doesn't Heal. And here's the truth of the matter, that even though God does heal, and we would call that a miracle, which would make it something supernatural and special, there are many times when God doesn't heal. And here's what we're, where we need to settle as the body of Christ. What we need to do, brothers and sisters, is, and this is where I've come in my own personal walk with the Lord. I'm called in a lot of situations to come and pray for somebody. And here's what I do. I pray for their healing. I pray in the name of Jesus. I pray in faith, you know, with as much faith I can muster. And then what I do is I leave it before God who is sovereign. And God sovereignly, according to his will, sometimes in response to that prayer, heals somebody, and sometimes he doesn't. And that's what makes him God. And if God decides to give a gift of healing in the moment, the person to which he imparts the gift will become a channel of the Spirit to impart healing. So just like the Spirit would give you a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a gift of faith, He can impart a gift of healing. And it is true that in that moment, you, if you get that gift in that moment, would become the channel by which the Spirit would heal that person sometimes through the laying on of hands or the anointing with oil or maybe even a spoken word. However God decides to do it, He does it. But I also want to mention that I do not believe and I think there's evidence, as you can see the flow of the text, that that gift remains on an individual forever. If it did, I would highly urge people who believe that they have this gift to go to chalk right now. Because if you have that gift of healing, go to chalk hospital and please lay your hands on every child that's in that hospital. I do not believe that you have to hold a crusade to manifest this gift. However, I will say, if God wants to heal at a crusade, that's up to him. But I don't think there needs to be necessarily a night that's scheduled, because I think healing is on God's schedule, but I will qualify by saying it does happen often in response to prayers of God's people. So there's been times I've been driving somewhere, and I've prayed this, Lord, if you want to heal this person, 
then please impart the gift of healing right now in Jesus' name. But you are sovereign. And so I'll go and I'll lay hands on a person and I'll pray for them. And God is faithful and sometimes God raises somebody up and at other times I've prayed for somebody and that hasn't happened. Maybe God took them home. God is sovereign. God remains God even if he gives a gift of healing, even if something's happened at one point, and we try to repeat, you know, this is what we do sometimes. All right, what exactly did I pray in that one time that God healed that person? How did I pray it? And what emphasis did I put on the name of Jesus? Did I I say it loud? Was I more mellow? Look, let's stop with the formula stuff. You know, do you have to just, do you have to say it, you know, like you're a Pentecostal preacher in the name of Jesus? You know, Look, look, God, if God wants to give you passion in the moment, praise the Lord. But I'm not sure that the emphasis on certain syllables is going to make it work. It's the work of the Spirit. And if He decides to heal, and I believe we should ask with all the fervency, and look, especially when it's someone we know, right? Or it's a situation we're going with. then we pray with a little bit more passion and fervency maybe than in other situations. And I have to tell you, there's been times when I've walked away from praying for somebody and I I felt like, Lord, I am so sorry. That was a weak prayer. You know, I, I have felt that and I'm sure you could relate to this. I have felt Maybe that my faith wasn't what it should be, or I, I, I just felt weak in the moment. I don't know. But I don't think God is dependent on how I feel. I think if he wants to give the gift of healing, he'll give the gift of healing. I was reading Strobel's book, and there's a story. It's told by a scholar. His last name is Olson. And talking about gifts of healing and miracles, and uh, he was telling a story about uh, a little boy. They were driving on their way to church. He's a 10-year-old boy. Somehow the the door of the car opened up and the little boy fell out of the car while the car was moving. And the family, can you imagine, fell out of the moving vehicle. So the family, you know, hysterically turned the car around and the boy was standing there in the middle of the street. And they said, are you all right? Are you all right? The little boy said, I'm fine. Didn't you see the man who caught me? Well, these, these are the kinds of things that, you know, they're, they're reported in certain circles, but we don't always hear about them. But God is a miracle-working God. Do you know that they're saying now a quarter to one-half of Muslims who are uh, coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus are saying that they had a dream or vision about Jesus? A quarter to one-half of Muslims converting to Christ are saying that they had a dream or a vision about Jesus. That's amazing. In the last days, there will be these visions and dreams. And it is happening. And it's amazing. And it's coming from very reputable sources. God does give gifts of healing, but sometimes he doesn't heal in rapid fire. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He asked God to remove it. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. In Philippians 2, 27, Paul left Epaphroditus at the point of death, at death's door. He left him sick. If Paul always had the gift of healing, and Paul was used to heal people in Acts 19 and other places, he would have healed Epaphroditus. Tells you he probably prayed for him, and God didn't heal him for whatever reason. 
In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for his frequent stomach ailments. If Paul had an ongoing gift of healing in him, why did he just not pray for Timothy? Why did he tell him to take some wine, medicinally speaking? Because God is sovereign. And even the Apostle Paul couldn't heal on demand. And in 2 Timothy 4.20, he says, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus, 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul obviously would have prayed for Trophimus, but he was still sick. And finally, in Galatians 4, 13 through 15, Paul says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? Galatians 4, 13 through 15. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. If Paul had the gift of healing, why couldn't he just pray for himself and be healed? Why did he have apparently an eye problem? Because God sometimes allows us to work through physical ailments. And the longer we live on the planet, we all know, no matter how much faith we have, that these bodies ain't going to last. Have you started to figure that one out yet? Oh, yes. Every time I bend over now, my body reminds me I am wearing down. I was doing yard work yesterday. You know, and I like to pick up the leaves and like make everything nice and tidy and clean. And every time I was bending over, I was making what I describe as Uncle Frank noises. Some of my let out a little longer just in case the neighbors could be sympathetic, or a child might hear me in the house and want to come out and help me. And then there was a couple leaves that I looked at, and I was like, nah, (laughs) it's not worth it. I'm not bending over again. I'm done. Anyway, so I'm looking forward to that new body. Verse 10. Now to another... The affecting of miracles. I just told you miracle stories about dreams and visions. The little boy. These are supernatural events, but they're not necessarily healings. Notice, verse 10, to another is given, implied, the affecting, that's the word where we get energy, of miracles, dunamis. These are miracles outside of physical healings. Um, Jesus allowed Peter to walk on the water. We can think of uh, maybe miraculous interventions with demonic possession cases. Uh, I told you a story not too long ago of one I was involved with where praying in the name of Jesus delivered a young man from demonic possession. That's a miracle. I take no credit for that. I was crying out to God like you wouldn't believe. Oh, Lord. And at one point in that prayer, I said, Lord, I know you're here. And the only one that can deal with this is you. And that young man was delivered. Well, God gives to another prophecy. This is going to be the subject of 1 Corinthians 14, so I'll just touch on this. It could be the direct word of God explained. It also could have an application of something directly to someone's life, not necessarily a Bible verse. We'll talk about this more as we go on. To another, notice the distinguishing of spirits or discerning of spirits. This would be 
a sense that something's wrong, that something's a lie. Uh, have you ever entered into an area and just had this weird sense that there's something wrong? There's something dark here. Uh, this could be the discerning of spirits since uh, in the last days there will be doctrines of demons. It could be that you're hearing teaching and you're going, that's, that's just off, that's wrong. I love to tell the story of an old black man who got saved. He was an older gentleman, I think he was in his 80s, and he was being discipled by a pastor. He walked out of the church and he walked onto the street and a Jehovah's Witness was there preaching and handing out literature. So I think it was old Fred, and so he went out there, and a group began to assemble, and the Jehovah's Witnesses preaching his stuff, and the pastor walked out and said, oh, my new little sheep, he's only a new Christian, but he decided to stay back and just see what Fred would think of the Jehovah's Witness. And so it disbanded, and the pastor went up to old Fred and said, hey, Fred, what'd you think of what that guy had to say? And Fred said, well, pastor, I, I don't like to know too much about such things. But when he was preaching, something deep down inside me kept saying, He's a liar! He's a liar! He's a liar! <laughs> there you go. That's the discerning of spirits. <laughs> In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul warns that the lawless one will come according to the energia, the working of Satan, and will work miracles, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Perhaps this is the understanding that something could look miraculous, but discernment says it's not of God. It's a lie. Since the Holy Spirit lives in you, and He's the Spirit of truth, it would seem that He would help you understand what is true and what's a lie. And of course, that's always comparing it to the Word of God. Discern Discernment of spirits, diakrisis in Greek, means to estimate, to judge, to be able to discriminate between light and darkness, true and false. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, 1 Timothy 4.1, and doctrines of demons. And so this gift is imparted probably in the moment to be able to discern such things. And then finally, and this is last on the list probably because the Corinthians were elevating this and saying unless you had this gift, you weren't spiritual. God gives various kinds of tongues or languages and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, I'm going to tell another Calvary Chapel story because I think it's worth you hearing if you haven't heard this before. Pastor Chuck wrote a book called Living Water. And he was telling about the early days of the Calvary Chapel movement, and they had a meeting one evening. A woman was invited by a friend. She was a non-Christian, invited to church, and she was having marriage issues. And so her friend said, why don't you come to church with me, and uh, you can talk to the pastor after, and maybe he can help with your marriage. And so the service went on, and um, the gift of language or tongues was manifested in, the, I think it was an evening uh, Bible study. And so um, someone spoke a language and somebody else interpreted it. And so the woman came up to Pastor Chuck following the meeting and said, uh, I'm here and, and a friend invited me and I want to talk about my marriage. But before we talk about my marriage, I want you to explain to me what just happened there. And what happened was Pastor Chuck's wife spoke in French, aristocratic French, no less. And it was interpreted by another woman. 
And every time this happens, if there's an interpretation, it's to bring glory to God. It's speaking to God, not to man. So anyway, uh, she asked the question, and Pastor Chuck said, well, that's the biblical gift of tongues, and I can tell you that my wife has never learned that language. I've been married to her for a long time. I know she's never learned that language. And the other lady doesn't know the language who interpreted it. But the Spirit gave the understanding. And here's what the woman said. She said, she said, I lived in France for five years. That woman spoke perfect aristocratic French. And that other woman perfectly interpreted what she said. And that woman who came to get help with her marriage became a Christian that night. Now, that's an experiential, subjective story I just told you, but that is how it can work. And I believe it's given in the moment, and God has a purpose behind it. Maybe it's to show an unbeliever the miraculous. But in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems like one of the primary uses is for prayer and praise in your private uh, time with God. I do know this has become very controversial. I know there's a whole wing of evangelicalism that says any manifestation of the gift of tongues is from the flesh or even potentially demonic. But friends, I see no evidence in the Bible as I go through these gifts. If the word of wisdom and word of knowledge are still operational, does Paul qualify the gift of tongues? No. Would I tell you it's been abused and faked, and wrongly engaged in many contexts? Yes. Has that scared many people away from the genuine gift? Yes. But if it happens, it's supposed to manifest God for the common good, to bring us together, not to divide us. And just in rapid fire, just so you can get a taste of where we'll head in 1 Corinthians 14. The gift of language, Paul encouraged it, 1 Corinthians 14, 5. It refers to some kind of language, 14, 21. It's spoken to God, 14, 2 and 28. You can go back and listen to this later, but I'll, I'll deal with this as we get into this chapter later. It's not to humans, 14, 2, 6 and 9. It's uh, a language, but maybe not a normal human language. It's mysterious, 14.15. Paul used it in private prayer and praise, 14.18. For prayer, 14.2, 14 and 28. For singing praises, and perhaps even for things sized too deep for words, Romans 8.26. Now, quick story. So, years ago, I'm a young pastor, and I'm teaching through the book of Acts. And I'm wrestling with these gifts and if they're for today. And uh, I, I looked down and on the front row we had a visitor to the church. And so, you know, I'm, I'm about to deal with Acts 2 and the giving of the gift of tongues and so forth. And I sat down on the front pew after doing a few things and front chairs. And next to me, this woman begins to pray in a different language in my ear. And she's just praying and I, I didn't really know what she was saying. The woman on the front row of our church was the woman in Pastor Chuck's book, Living Water, who had interpreted the French back in the day, and she was sitting in our church on the day that I was teaching Acts chapter 2. 
And I was praying, like, Lord, would you show me if this is legit? Because I know there's a lot of people who have had bad experiences and a lot of people who question this. And there she is praying in my ear in a language right before I went up to preach. And I was like, okay, here we go. (laughs) So I think the Lord was saying, look, I do do this today, and it's beautiful when it's done biblically. And finally, one and the same Spirit works all these things, every gift we've touched on, What things? All the manifestations just mentioned. He distributes to each one individually, would you note it, just as he wills. He does it for his good and perfect will and his glory. Father, thank you for this section on the manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. I think every believer in this room would say, Lord, I want to be yielded to whatever you want to do to manifest yourself in the world and in the church, that we might make known, make evident the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you that, Jesus, you gave your life for us, and then you sent the Spirit, you gave the Spirit. You are such a gift-giving God, and you continue to, to impart gifts to your people in the moment when we need them. And other gifts, you allow us to have them through our whole Christian journey. And we're just humbled that you would care so much about us to give us gifts that we can give away and people can see that there is a God who loves them. With your head and heart bowed and your heart humbled before the Lord, maybe you would ask the Lord right now, Father, what are my spiritual gifts? Lord, this week, whatever gift you want to give me that might help make you known, to another brother or sister in Christ, to deepen their faith to an unbelieving family member, friend, co-worker. Would you do a work through my life? Would you grant to me what I need from your spirit to be empowered, to be a witness in the world, to make you known? If you haven't met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the greatest gift that was ever given is what we talked about in John 3, 16, that God so loved you, he gave his son for you. Paul says, he loved me and gave himself for me. Would you ask him into your life right now? Something like this. Lord Jesus, I want to know that love. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Prayed if it's you. Thank you for rising from the dead. I put my faith and my trust in you as my Lord and Savior my King and my God. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit, Lord. I want to know what it means to follow you. I turn away from my sin, my past, trying to do things the way of the world or even following a false religion. I turn away from that. I repent of it and I put my faith and trust in you. Save me and change me and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name. Father, for those who have prayed, for those who have maybe rededicated their life, and for this wonderful body of believers, may you bless them, keep them. May your beautiful face shine upon them. May you pour out your spirit into the midst of this body for the common good and the glory of God. In Jesus' name.